from the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. A very warm welcome to Latopia After Dark. As you ought to know by now, this is the show in which we bravely think the unthinkable and sometimes try to pronounce the unpronounceable. Or should that be unpronounceable? I don't know. But I do have a gobsmackingly garrulous gathering of gurus to guide me. And that's the last serial alliteration you'll hear from me tonight, I promise you. From Fort Lauderdale, the Venice of America, we have writer and leading lawyer Donna Balmond. Donna is currently writing Let's Quill the Lawyers, that's Q-U-I-L-L, a writer's guide to the courtroom. Due to be published in December 2008, she's also working on several young adult writing projects. Donna, how's your week been? Fabulous. I just handed in my manuscript to my publisher for Let's Quill the Lawyers, and I'm putting the final touches on my middle grade novel, Cursed, for the workshop that I'm going to be attending at the SCBWI conference. So I've gotten a lot done this week. That's very cool. Very good. And also working on a novel for the young adult market is Dave Bartram. Dave lectures in fine art, and he comes from England's West Country. Has it been a good week for you, Dave? Uh, Yeah, it's been one of those uh, fairly good weeks. I've uh, been beavering away on my uh, YA novel, really, along with the usual stuff that one has to do. So quite a productive week. Absolutely, yeah. And Beverly Gray is our next panellist. She hails from Indianapolis, and she's currently finishing a fantasy novel. You've just had some snow down there, I think, haven't you, Bev? Yes, and they have a big storm coming, so hopefully my airplane will take up on take off on time tomorrow morning before the snow comes. Where are you headed for? You're going to be a snowbird. I'm going to Walt Disney World. Ah, how lovely. Enchanted. Enchanted. That's the big movie of this season, isn't it? Enchanted. We're back to England now with Richard Howes, who is one of the first students to be accepted for Britain's highly prestigious National Academy of Writing. Has it been a good week at the Academy, Rich? It has. Uh, this week we had Ben Mason from the Shield Land Associates Agency. Uh-huh. Uh, came in to instruct us exactly why we need agents before we go to publishers. Did he convince so that you? Was, um, yes, uh, as he puts it, uh, agents work with people, publishers deal with product. Uh, and it, it's, it was a, a really good discussion on, on the points about how an agent can support you, whereas a publisher is looking for a final product. And if you don't cut it with them, then you're out the door, whereas an agent will stick with you and try to work with you through you know, possibly several products and, and projects uh, until something works. So he's earned his commission already. And this week we have a brand new guest from Southern California in the form of Lynn Price who is both the publisher, being editorial director of Burla Publications, and also an author of the award-winning book Donovan's Paradigm. And perhaps because uh, Lynn wears two hats, she's actually tied up at this very moment on a phone call, um, but she will be joining us, uh, she promises, in a few moments' time. Now, if you look at the bestseller charts on both sides of the Atlantic, it's not hard to predict what you're going to see. In the UK this week, for example, fully 15 of the top 20 hardback non-fiction books are television spin-offs. Nigella Lawson, Trini and Susanna, Sharon Osbourne, and many other similarly great writers 
of our time. Stateside, the week's hardcover fiction list is equally humdrum. James Patterson, John Grisham, Ken Follett, Clive Custler, Patricia Cornwall, Danielle Steele, and so on, and so on, and so on. You'd be forgiven for thinking that we'd all been swallowed up in some vast time warp and gone back to the 1980s, or even, for some of them, the 1970s. This is surely corporate publishing at its most predictable. But you can't really blame the publishers, or can you? Bloomsbury's chairman certainly did when he once called his fellow publishers' offerings derivative pap. The truth is, publishing is a very risky business. Consider this. In the US, 53,000 publishers, many of them very small, put out about 120,000 new books every year. The market's worth about $18 billion, which is about two and a half euros at present exchange rates, and many books have a lifespan measured in mere days. Little wonder that given the choice between a brilliant but risky title by a newcomer and the latest pot boiler, most publishers would plump for Danielle Steele. After all, they've got to eat, just as we do. But here's the rub. If all you publish is the same old, same old, then your markets is slowly going to get older and wither and die. Next generation of readers is being neglected, and they are, of course, the future of our business. So, with former publishing superstars like Judith Regan crashing to earth for publishing too dangerously, and with the British libel laws preventing all but the bravest or maybe foolhardiest of publishers from tackling controversial subjects, we have to confront a very awkward question. Has safe publishing finally taken over? And, dare we even ask, is reading even culturally relevant anymore? Those are big questions. So let's go to our big guy for the first answer. Richard, what do you think? Well, as um, Ben Mason was saying uh, earlier in the week, uh, a, a lot of uh, established agents have left the the big publishing houses to, to set up their own. Uh, for example, um, the guys that set up Orion, you know, they're really kicking off against places like Random House, which just sit with the established. Uh, and it's it seems to be that the more independent publishers that are looking to, to fit the bill with, with the newer authors. Uh, vintage uh, are beginning to look more and more towards um, the debut authors. Um, so th- there, is, there is the market there, but it's, it's really getting past the fact that publishers now have to pay, for example, Waterstones for, for the space on the shelves, and in particular, the uh, three for two um, books they have to pay something like twenty grand to get their books on there, so that the publishers are, are, are having more and more difficulty um, in in the, their their loss of earnings, mm. I suppose, in in reference to what they're trying to trying to sell, which makes it more it, and more risky. But do do we as readers just you know turning things around a bit? I mean, do we want dangerous publishing anymore? Well, there's there are there are a number of debates, aren't there? There's the broader kind of socio-educational discussion about reading is ever more culturally relevant because we get an increasingly illiterate nation and maybe publishing is becoming more dangerous as the scope of the potential readers gets narrower and narrower in terms of what they accept and is that the broader remit of education in society rather than publishers um, another side of that is if people like Waterstones are squeezing the publishers is that the kind of um, same kind of debate you have with with 
some of the supermarkets and carrot providers and and, and farmers and you know you become one source of uh, one place to sell your product and then you can squeeze the price and so on mm. that's one side of the debate that kind of thing the other side is represented by uh, a reprint of a, a very famous book, uh, The Moat in God's Eye, by Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell, uh, which in its original edition featured a backstory where there'd been a huge kind of uh, pan-human civil war between the forces of the Muslim world and the forces of the Christian world, which was the, the, the preamble to the, the actual narrative. In the reprint, that whole preamble was completely gone. Now, the reprint was post-9-11. Now, clearly, that was seen to be far too risky a backstory to have in a popular novel. Now, should that have been done? Shouldn't it have been done? I don't know. But it kind of highlights this debate, I think. I, I wonder, though, if the big houses especially have always been a little on the safe side. I mean, I can remember when John Grisham's first book came out the same week, I was working in a bookstore, we got James Michener's newest and the Michener sat and the Grisham sold. And, of course, it, it's interesting to me that now Grisham is considered one of the old guard. So I, I'm wondering if their, uh, this tendency to safe publishing has always been something with us. I, I always thought the big houses especially were a little on the conservative side and always have been. Uh, if you go all the way back to when Dickens was writing, everybody wanted to publish Dickens and some of those new new writers, uh, you know, Hemingway, the people like that, who, who, you know, who wants to publish them? And now they're considered classics. Well, hello, Lynn. <laughs> so, finally, I'm such a total loser. I had a business call. What can I say? Ladies and gentlemen, here's Lynn Price, our, our half publisher, half author. Lynn, it's great to have you with us. Oh, thank you. Again, I am really sorry. Well, I want to ask you, wearing your editorial hat, what you think the future of dangerous book publishing is. This argument's been going on for a long time, a long time, and that um, is the beauty of the small commercial press like us, is because we have to do things differently. We can't do the Da Vinci Codes or, you know, all of those different big mega buster books because, well, we can't compete with Random House, Simon yeah. Schuster and all those guys, and so we've got to be better than everybody else, and the only way that we can do that is by taking books that other large publishers aren't producing, and that is, i.e., the really good stuff, if I do say so myself. Well, absolutely. So you're, so you are, you're a publisher here and now, on, on air, you're prepared to say you are, you are taking risks. You are going for, for, the, for the dangerous material that maybe the larger publishers are, are shy of. Well, it depends on how dangerous you go, and obviously it's got to fit in with the publisher's um, the types of books that they publish. You, know, you, you will find that your small press their editing team specializes. Uh, you know, Random House has a gajillion editors, and so they can take, um, you know, romance, mysteries, crime, regular fiction, nonfiction, the whole spectrum. But a small publisher invariably is going to have a very, very small editing team. And so we got together and decided what kind of a publisher, what kind of books were we going to publish? And so once you've decided that a book meets your criteria, uh, the second thing I look for is it controversial. I mean, heck, let's face it, that sells. And uh, because it gets people's emotions up, it makes people think. Um, it's invariably a very timely topic. 
And uh, that gets people talking. The more you get people talking, the more you get people buying the book. In addition to the independent publishers, I think children's writing seems to have more room for newcomers. Good examples are, are Jeff Kinney, who wrote Diary of a Wimpy Kid, and Peter's own deal for MJ Harris. Uh, she's a newcomer who has just made a deal for a middle grade series. So while children's publishing also has the celebs who suddenly take up writing, there seems to be more new voices there. That's absolutely right. And the the encouraging thing, I mean, I think it's encouraging, really, is that the, the celebrity-type children's books usually don't do very well. Publishers often overpay for them, and they underperform in the marketplace. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that is. That's, that's, that's because they're, they're not marketing them towards the kids, are they? They're, they're going on the whole aspect of, hey, here's a celebrity. Isn't it great that they've sold, made, written this book? <laughs> as if they've written it and um they don't pitch it to the kids that they leave it on on the whim that the parents are going to go this is amazing i've got to buy this for for my children and the the majority of them aren't those that will will probably get them for themselves just because they like madonna and they want the extra bit of rubbish to go with their collection i know that a lot of kids authors are also just going directly to the schools um, you know, doing um, a library day. I remember when I, back in the day when I was a teacher, um, we would have authors come in and read their book and then sell their books um, directly, you know, at the school. And, you know, parents were there on hand and they'd have a little book signing type thing. And um, I know of a couple of authors that absolutely sold beautifully because they did stuff like that and got in at the kids. That That is the key. Um, we had a masterclass at NAW last week with a self-published children's author, Robert Ronson, and, and he was trying to nail it down for us that you've got to get out there. You've got to find, you've got to know who your audience is. You've got to pitch to them. And he was going to uh, after-school um, clubs he was doing library talks. He was making sure he was out there on the Saturdays um, at Waterstones in, in Birmingham um, so that he was actually there where the kids are going to go. And certainly at this time of the year, pitching it to their parents that, you know, this is a, a book for Christmas for your child. Um, and the celebrities aren't going to do that, are they? They're, they're going to go to the, the big Waterstones or the big WH Smiths or Walmart uh, in the biggest towns, and all they're going to get is is adults going along to sign whatever else. Can you imagine Madonna going to a school signing? It's just not going to happen, and my kids don't know who she is. Now, if Hannah Ma Montana wrote a book, they'd buy it, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> trust me, I was just online buying tickets, but uh, it they don't know who some of these so-called celebs are because they're, they're just too old. Sorry. Well, let me just bring this back to, um, you know, to the, this, whole, this whole question of, of are publishers prepared to take risks anymore? You see, I, I have a thesis. I mean, if you look at the research uh, in the UK, half the population now very, very rarely buys a book. So book buying is becoming more and more concentrated in the hands of fewer, fewer people. And in the States, there's new research from the National Endowment for the Arts showing that Americans are reading less and less for fun. And as that happens, their performance in other academic disciplines like math and science is dropping too, and employers are rating more workers than ever before deficient in basic writing skills. So my thesis is this, that, that we actually need risky, dangerous titles out there to stimulate us. And if we don't get them, then actually, you know, this, this derivative PAP, that Bloomsbury's chairman called it, is just taking over. Well, I and I also think it. I also think it depends on what you mean by dangerous. You know, I think that what has happened is so much of it is more titillating, and 
Um, there's just, well, face it, there's just a lot of crap out there. It's the same thing with the movies. They're, they're giving us, they're giving the public what they think we want to see. And I think that that's why I love being a small press because we have the opportunity to put out books that we have heard people want to see and aren't seeing it anymore. The, the flip side of that is uh, that my wife, uh, she's doing a, an English and Classics degree at the moment, um, so most of her reading is quite heavy stuff. Um, when she goes on holiday, when she has some downtime, what she wants to read is the same old Marianne Keys and Penny Vincenzi um, because she knows what she's going to get. Um, I find yeah. that quite, quite a banal concept myself, but th there is that, that big market um, for same old, same old, where you know what the story's going to be like, but it's, it's just a, a different formula on the same template. Well, they're smart. You know, Random House, Simon & Schuster, all the big guys, they're very smart. They've got a formula that has served them very, very well. It can turn, can you, continues to serve them very well just because they have the most money and they're able to, you know, set the rules. But there are a lot of, of small commercial independent presses that are out there that are really making an impact on different types of books. But then also we appreciate how tough it is. And so we have to be careful. We can't go too far outside, um, you know, unless, unless it, it's a complete niche market where it's, you know, uh, the, the vampire, oh, God, what's, what's the new one that's coming out? You know, the vampire... Uh, murderers or well, any combination of those words would work actually exactly exactly and that is such a niche marketplace and of course those are selling really well um, you know same with romance those sell really well the erotica sells really well and um, so it's just being able to find a place in in the publishing world to stay afloat and that's the toughest thing for the small independent press I was just going to say, uh, and, and then uh, the other aspect is that the people winning awards uh, in the most recent years aren't the the standard books. They're 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 the more the more I guess what we're calling dangerous, the ones prepared to go out and do something different and talk about something new and and strange and and brilliant. Um, for example, you yourself, Lynn, won a uh, an award this year with your book. Right. Well, no offense to our host on on the issue of unoriginality, but I think agents have to share the blame somewhat. Most big publishers won't even look at unagented books. So if yeah. agents are going to be the gatekeepers, aren't they the ones sending in all the unoriginal stuff? Most agents want published authors or celebs looking to break into print. So how many have websites out there like Latopia that are dedicated to developing new authors? Well, one that I know yeah. of. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I think I think agents are very torn on this, actually. And obviously, agents also have to put bread on the table. And most agents um, want to do, I mean, <laughs> unless you've got a death wish. I mean, most agents want to do big deals, obviously. Um, that, I mean, that changes a little bit, actually, as an agency sort of gets older and the backlist comes in. Uh, and so you're not just completely reliant on doing the next big deal um, for, the, for the cash flow. That, that sort of turning point in my experience is about five years, actually. And at that point, you can then 
start to do stuff that's perhaps le- less overtly commercial, but but more worthwhile. But ultimately, of course, I mean, you know, if, if you're not producing a manuscripts and authors that, that publishers want to buy, then, um, you know, you're going, going to go out of business. There's this whole interesting dynamic, I think, between, on the one hand, the um, the riskier element of publishing, and publishing really is about risk. It's, it's about one publisher saying, I think that manuscript and that author is going to do incredibly well. And that's that's the casino instinct. That's gambling. So, you, you know, you, you've, you've got to sometimes you've got a really uh, very, very hot publisher who has, has got a, almost a sixth sense about a manuscript and you know, they just know it's going to succeed. And on the other hand, you've got this enormously sort of oppressive corporate ethos that don't take risks. You know, do, we want you to do exactly the same as you did last year, but we'll have another 4% this year, please. And that dynamic tension really is, is, a, is, a, is a battle that's always going on in publishing. I guess I'm concerned that um, the balance is going too far in the safe direction. But isn't that partly because of all the mergers so that where you used to have very distinctive publishing voices in the houses, they're all merging now and they're responsible to the bean counters. So that some of the editors who used to be able to, you know, this book really has something, they're having to, to justify it to people who probably don't care. All they want is the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the great thing about publishing, actually, and this is one of the things that keeps me in the business, is that there will always be new publishers setting up, um, smaller publishers like Lynn, who are prepared to be smaller and faster and just quicker and generally with better instincts than the uh, the big dinosaurs of the business. And also, I think increasingly, and this is something that I'm sure we're going to be returning to time after time in uh, the Topia podcast because it's such a big issue, this whole question that um, I think Richard raised earlier of self-publishing, which traditionally has been a bit of an author's graveyard, but I suspect now more and more with electronic distribution and so on actually could become a viable alternative for, for authors. Anyway, let's put a line under that subject now. And move on to our next topic, which is, where's the buzz? Four months ago, Penguin became the first publisher in the UK to use a new word-of-mouth marketing approach called buzz marketing. Now, here's the idea. You give a 1,000 people some cash, and in return, they enthuse about your product to their mates in ways such as sending emails to all their friends, posting positive online reviews by visibly carrying the book around in public and showing it in places, and by discussing it at parties, and of course, by blogging excitedly about it. There are several firms now who offer these ready-made social networks for hire. Well, it sounds like out-and-out bribery to me, and if I, <laughs> if I had so-called friends like these, I'd probably dump them rather quickly. But am I just being a grumpy old bookman? Shouldn't we be con- congratulating Penguin for, for trying something new? What, what do we think, Dave? Uh, I was just thinking about it. it. It sounds like the script for a slightly dodgy 70s sitcom. Uh, but this, this, this person who wanders around promoting books to their friends, it, it, you could see, you know, the late Leonard Rossiter in the, in the role in a slightly grubby Gabardine Mac with this paperback poking out. And I, I yeah, he, he's tried internet spamming already. In that, that, but anyway. You know what this reminds me of? You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of a print-on-demand company that forces all of their authors to do virtually every bit of their own sales uh, because that's the only way that the book is going to be marketed is if the author gets out there, sells the books out of their trunk. And, you know, it's smarmy. It is just smarmy. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. And I think Penguin, uh, I, I just, I, 
I would kill any of my authors if they did something like this. I would absolutely kill them. And I, you know, there are just certain things you don't do. This is one of them. It's just cheap. It's Kmart. It's just not a good idea. It makes me we think of the hat. old sandwich boards with the guys walking up and down, you know, go eat at Joe's. <laughs> exactly. On the other hand, it's probably pretty effective. You see concert, TV, and movie promotions being spread via text message now. We have a generation growing up used to this stuff. So I, I think that it, it's something that's going to be, we're going to see more of it rather than less. And I think newspapers are dropping the ball on nurturing really good reviewers. Chauncey Mabe of our own Sun Sentinel down here was at the National Writers Conference bemoaning the fact that reviewers are not being nurtured like they used to be. So these folks with their hands out, uh, any review five stars for a buck are bound to fill the gap, aren't they? Oh, well, you know, they are charging for reviews. You know, if you, you can pay Kirkus, I can't remember what the fee is, but, you know, they'll guarantee a review if you pay for reviews. Well, that that is um, shocking alone. It's payola. It, it is. Mm. It's payola. Mm. And, you know, whether the book is of quality, I think that I, I don't know, maybe I'm just old-fashioned enough to believe that if a book is truly, truly good and you get it into the right hands, you know, your, your big mouths, people that are in a position to know a lot of people and to speak about your book in a genuine manner, that can be very, very effective, but to pay somebody, I'm not willing to pay somebody to sit and get all hoo-ha over my book or one of my author's books. I, it's not something I'm, I would do. <laughs> how, how, can you, how can you trust your friend, you know, come along, hey, uh, this, this book's great, I, I just can't put it down, it's good to my hands, it's amazing. Are you getting paid for this? No, not at all, not me. No, this book's amazing. Or you can imagine, you know, you, you go to see a friend uh, at the pub uh, and you're sitting there with your pints and you're like, hey, uh, Mike, I've got something down here in my bag. I just wanted to show you a, it's a book. It's the best book in the world. Are you getting paid for this? No, not me. It's just amazing. You've got to read it. Oh, dear. Um, I, I mean, I, I personally think that really the way that the publishers should go is perhaps to put the first chapter of a new author's book at the end of uh, an established author's book, of, of, you know, covering a similar topic yeah. uh, as a way of, uh, you know, advertising. It, it's such a, a simple concept because some authors have had their next book, the first chapter, in, in one of their books as a, as well, a way of giving... Publishers don't yeah, but the reason publishers don't do that is because, you know, now you're talking page count, baby. Higher page count means we got to pay more for the print run per book and all of that stuff. And we're, face it, we're all just cheap little bastards and we can't help it. That's just <laughs> <pretty awful>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, years and years ago, I can remember some of the uh, science fiction houses. Uh, Del Rey comes to mind when it was still Judy Del Rey. Uh, they used to, with the established authors like, uh, and McCaffrey, every now and then they'd have two or three pages of an author Anne might be introducing, sort of, well, I've read the book, I really like it, and here are the first three pages of it. So I think it has been done in the past. I think it could be very effective. Actually, I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. And I'm glad that we brought that up because I do have several books that are of the same ilk, and there's no reason why I couldn't put a little three-page three teaser at the back of the book saying, you know, if you enjoyed, 
you know, thus and such book, you know, you are going to love The War of the Rosens. And, you know, it's it's a nice little lead-in. I, I like it. I don't know. It's like when you get these um, other people also listen to on iTunes and similar. I, I tend not to pay any attention to them whatsoever. Uh, maybe that's just me. But I, I think, no, I'll decide whether I want to. Well, we just this, have to shoot you, Dave. That's just all there uh, is to well, it. Yeah, you, you're <laughs> in the line. Right? In the queue. The, re- the rest of us follow, follow like sheep. All <laughs> 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 right, sheep, let's move on. The uh, definitive American woman of our time. Who do you think that describes? No, sadly, it's not our own Donna or Beverly or Lynn. But in fact, that's what New York Magazine calls Martha Stewart, who has recently signed a 10-book deal, I'd like to have done that one, with her longtime publisher. Many of us thought she'd never resurface after her five-year jail term. But here she is, back again, in charge of her expanding empire, whose stock price apparently is steadily rising. So what exactly accounts for the Martha Stewart effect? As a mere man, I really don't understand. And why is it that some celebrities can crash and burn after public disgrace, and you hear no more of them at all, and yet others will rise again from the ashes, phoenix-like? Donna, what do you think? Well, I think it's actually a little bit of a British attitude versus an American attitude mm-hmm. towards convicted felons. Uh, I, I would say that that uh, our attitude here is the fact that uh, she did something wrong has nothing to do with whether her recipes work. Martha is popular because her ideas are simple and doable, and I've never failed with her recipes. I actually do buy her recipe books because they're easy. So I don't care what, what she did or allegedly did. Uh, so I, I think that that's... One one of those reasons now you know if you get to murder that that's a whole other story which i won't you know i won't say anything because he lives near me but um as far as the icon of american woman <laughs> i have to take exception with i think that's a little extreme and i would point to women like hillary clinton and nancy pelosi and madeleine albright who've accomplished really important things um, martha and her empire are to be applauded but selling books it doesn't make her an icon of woman, womanhood any more than uh, being able to beat someone up in a fight makes someone an icon of manhood. Well, we, we, we shouldn't be looking, looking up to crooks and bandits anyway. I mean, you kind of call her a crook and a bandit. Is, is that allowed? <laughs> we just have done. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I look she's a bandit. Back. Is, she a, is she a bandit? I mean, does she go around on a horse holding people up to, to ransom? I don't know. I've seen any bandoliers in oh, her right. recipe books, but you never know. Uh, now, I was just going to teeth. say that uh, she, she seems to have a knack for reinventing herself, just like Madonna yeah. has. Uh, she's a hard-headed businesswoman. And keep in mind, too, that when she did her prison term, she did it without whining about it. She... You know, she took her the due process of law and paid her debt, and so she's you know clean slate. She goes on from here. She, she's done it. She's done it once already. You know, she she might try again. You know, well, she, she knows how to play the system this time. What insider uh, trading? <laughs> the, the allegation was insider trading. For heaven's sakes, it's not like she killed somebody. <laughs> I think that's well, the point, isn't it? Nobody's going to care who buy her recipe books. Are really going to care if she was trying to defraud the stock market? It's of no interest <laughs> to people whether their shrimp recipe works. I suppose it would have been worse if she was trying to cop off with with a married man, wouldn't it? I don't know. <laughs> it depends on which state you're in. I don't know, Martha. Mar- well, I I'm a non-cook, so she just does not send me in any way. She's to me, she's someone who's really, really fun to make make fun of, and that's about where she is with me. 
but face it, she makes money. She is she makes a ton of money for people. So why wouldn't uh, the publishers give her any kind of a book deal that she can? I think people were all very surprised that after she got out of jail, or even before she even went into jail, all the support that she garnered. And so people might have felt that she was definitely worth um, taking a risk well, on because she had this very large industry going. On, on, the, on, on the other side of the uh, sexual revolution, or sexual divide, I should say, uh, really, the, the Academic Study Guide, E-Notes, has just released a list of the 10 most manly writers ever. Um, their list comprises James Fenimore Cooper, Jules Verne, Jack London, Ernest Hemingway, Richard Wright, who I've never actually heard of, Ralph Ellison, William S. Burroughs, Jack Kerouac, Norman Mailer, and Cormac McCarthy. Now, apart from being rather American, apart from the odd Frenchie I saw creep in just there, is this list even remotely correct? Let's hear what our panel would include, or indeed expunge. Dave, uh, you're a manly man, or so rumour has it. What do you think? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> well, there's... there's... Nice Take off that tutu, Dave. Yeah, hey, he wears the trousers. It creaks. Well, it's comfortable. What can I do? Uh, yeah, it, it's this obsession with lists is is amazing, isn't it? I, I I kind of feel that one should include Woody Allen for his sense of humour and his uh, self-deprecation and all of those things. Very manly attributes, I would suggest. I'm not sure about a Frenchman being included in any list of uh, of note. Um, Beyond that, uh, Jack Kerouac, he was a bit of a guy. Um, Richard Wright, my, the Richard Wright I know of was uh, the keyboard player in Pink Floyd. Or was he the drummer? <laughs> it was the keyboard player. Um, it might be him, that, I suppose. Yeah, it could be him. It, it could yeah. be. could be. Who knows? Um, who cares, to an extent? Um, beyond that, James Fenimore Cooper, nice cut in kind of Napoleonic-style clothes. That's got to be good. Mm, quite metrosexual, uh, really. Well, silly as now. <laughs> I don't know about yeah. back in the day there. Uh, beyond that, yeah, those kinds of things, I think. But yeah, Woody Allen, possibly Barbara Cartland as well. What about yeah. um, Alan Moore or, or Frank Miller? I mean, I mean Frank Miller, he, he did uh, Sin City. He, he wrote 300. What's, what's more butch than, than 300 Spartans in loincloths going, <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's I like pirates bit. myself. <laughs> Arg. Arg. All right. Well, we're we're clearly descending into chaos and mayhem here. So finally, it's time for our and finally feature, which is the time and space where we want everyone, please, to tell us what they're currently reading or what they're currently enjoying, chosen from the enormously wide world of books, film, television, or indeed any other new media. Um, Beverly, would you like to go first? All righty. Um, I have. Just picked up Memoirs of a Geisha. I absolutely loved the film, so now I'm going to plunge into the book and see what how much more fabulous the book is than the film. So I'm looking forward to that one. Very good. Dave? Uh, I'm still wrestling with uh, Peter Ackroyd's biography of London, which is great. Hero, you know, city is hero, villain, victim. It's a fantastic book. Brilliant. And Donna? Um, well, I just discovered the Maui Writers Conference website. It has videos of past conferences free for three days and then for a modest fee after that. And it's got great stuff. That's on MauiWriters.com. And I've been spending lots of my work time. Fortunately, I can't fire myself. For fun, I just finished book one of the Spiderwick Con Chronicles, which is part of my goal to read the first book of every major middle grade series. Um, it's an excellent book, a good example of a younger middle grade. And it's a quick read, so um, I would recommend it. And of course, nice you've got to get that in before they make it into a movie, which will be out next year. 
I bet it will be, yeah. Uh, Lynn. Oh, this is embarrassing. You know, I've got a slush pile that's about five inches thick. Yeah, so yeah t- tell me about it. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, you know, I spend most of my time reading submissions, and I get very, very little free time. When I have free time, I get as far away from reading as possible, which is a pathetic thing to say. But since I write medical fiction, um, I uh, just uh, I got How Doctors Think by Jerome Groupman, MD, and he does just a wonderful job of getting into the hearts and minds of doctors, and that's where my writing expertise is. And so um, it's not terribly exciting probably for anybody else, but it's a thrill for me. <laughs> Fantastic. And last of all, Richard. Um, I haven't had the chance to read anything. It's been work, work, work this week. But I did go and see The Golden Compass in a cinema, uh, and uh, in complete disregard to any um, reviews I read, uh, it's it's an absolutely fabulous film. It's, it's yes, really good. It's good to hear. It it was. Um, I mean, it hasn't done very well in the U.S. Uh, apparently o- over its opening weekend, um, and and that could be for whatever reason they've read the negative reviews. They've agreed with the Catholic Church that it's uh, atheistic thinking, but the the story was absolutely beautiful. Um, it's it's on par at least with Star Wars and and Harry Potter. A better story. Um, than Harry Potter and Dakota Blue Richards, the girl that plays Lyra Balakwa, uh, absolutely shoots the the kids from Harry Potter out of the water with with her acting skill. And 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 any of the the debate that the theological aspect has been removed is is complete rubbish. These reviewers haven't read the books; they they don't seem to understand that what what is there is the essential parts of the story, and and it works brilliantly. That's brilliant. That's a very good recommendation. Thank you very much, Richard. And that wraps it all up for this week. On the Latopia After Dark team this week were Donna Bournemouth, Dave Bartram, Beverly Gray, Richard Howes, and our very special guest, Lynn Price. Show notes for this episode can be found at www.latopia.com slash podcast, where you'll also find a handy comment form for all your thoughts, comments, and reactions. You can also send feedback either by email or mp3 file if you're feeling particularly techie. Send all correspondence, please, to our email address, podcast at litopia.com. And just a closing thought, if you've enjoyed the show, why not give us a good review on iTunes and let your friends know about it too. Next week is the last show this year. Please do be sure to join us then. But for now, it's a very big thank you from me to our panel. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.